You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. Amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter chapter 9. The Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 29. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. I've titled the message today, A Desperate Parent. And I'm, I've uh, decided to step away from the book of James. Uh, I just feel real strongly that God has just put some things on my heart, on my mind. Especially this passage here. Beginning at verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought, your, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the to mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood. He answered it. He's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you all the glory. And we pray that, Lord, you would be free to move. And Lord, we'll give you the praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. 
Uh, real, real quickly, if you go back and look at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples are on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a place where Jesus would be in what we would say a divine tribunal. He's with uh, Elijah. He's with Moses and Jesus. And they're together and they're having this meeting there in heaven. And I'm in there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples are there with him. Peter, James, and John, three of the disciples are there. The other nine have been left at the base of the mountain. Now, I don't know about you, but I love mountains. Uh, I grew up near the ocean, so I lean a little bit more to the ocean. But I love mountains, and I love to go up into the Ozarks because when you go up into the Ozarks, they're a little different from, their smoke, from the Smokies. They're not quite as developed, not quite as commercialized. And sometimes I'll go up into the Ozarks and I'll take my camping gear, I'll take a kayak. In fact, right now I feel like it's calling me because I know that the Buffalo River is probably really kicking up its heels right now and because of all the rain. But when I get to Jasper, Arkansas, and I start my way up the mountain, and I get up into the mountains, I lose my, uh, my phone service, and that's a blessing. And, and I get up to a place where I don't have any phone service, I don't have uh, any electricity, I'm there on the Buffalo River camping with my kayak, and last time I even had my dog with me. You know, there's just something about a mountain. You get up there and you kind of feel like you're above all of your problems, all of your difficulties, all of your pain. It's almost like you escape, right? And for anybody who's been on a mountain. And so that's where the disciples are. Peter, James, and John have been on the Mount of Transfiguration. They have seen a divine visitation. Here's Moses who represents the law. Here's Elijah who represents the prophets. And here's Jesus, the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. And it's if they're having a divine tribunal, a meeting prior to Jesus going to the cross. And during, this, and during the middle of this, Peter, James, and John, they're good Baptists. They say, listen, we need to have a building program. We need to build some tabernacles, and we need to stay here. And I don't blame them. I'd want to stay there too. But you know, the reality is, though they wanted to stay, you have to go back down the valley, don't you? You know, sometimes we have to realize, you know, vacations are like that, aren't they? You know, there have been times Sheila and I have been in the middle of church problems and difficulties and struggles, and we would take a vacation, and I don't know about you, but I dreaded going back home. You, you take a vacation. You know, I mean, it's interesting. Sometimes I read now where people, I, I know people that have a, an agreement. They have a membership with Disney, and every quarter, every three months, they go to Disney for a week. I think to myself, who can afford to do that? You go to Universal Studios, and in that moment, whether you're in Disney or whether you're Universal, you feel like a child. You feel like you're on a mountain. You feel like you're away from all the problems and the difficulties. And now we have metaverse. I looked up the definition of metaverse. A single shared immersive 
uh, uh, persistent 3D virtual space. Now listen to this, where humans experience life in ways they could not in the physical world. I thought, wow, if it's not bad enough that we spend hours in front of TV, now we'll sit in our home separated from one another with a mask on our face. That's our enemy. Why? Because there's something in us that wants to escape life. And these disciples wanted to stay on the mountain because valleys represent pain. They represent hurt. They represent heartache. And, and we try to dress them up, don't, don't we? You know, we try to remove the face of suffering. When you walk into a hospital, you don't walk into the ICU. You don't walk into the ER. You walk into a place with coffee shops and gift shops and flower shops as if, as if when you walk into a hospital, we try to camouflage or con cause you not to realize that this is a place of suffering and pain and heartache and people are hurting. We do that with a funeral. I think to myself, you know, after living in Zimbabwe, Africa, even living in England, we're so far removed from the loss of loved ones anymore. We don't allow people to mourn anymore. We, we dress up funerals. We dress up people. We put makeup on them. We put soft lights. We have music playing. We have satin lined caskets. We do everything that we can to take the sting of death. And sometimes people just need to cry out and to mourn. They need to hurt for a while. We need to allow them to hurt. But the reality is, is we like mountains. We don't like valleys. Churches don't like valleys. The reality is this city almost has no evangelical presence anymore. Many churches have left this city. Why? Because we don't like mountains. I mean, we like mountains. We don't like valleys. We run from our valleys. We build in the suburbs. I, I wrote this down. We tuck ourselves away in granite countertops and golf carts that pick us up at our cars and shuttle us to the doors. And we walk into a lot of churches just like we do in a hospital. And there's bookstores and coffee shops and, and all the gizmos and gadgets as if this is, not, this is a museum for saints and not a hospital for sinners. If you're hurting, we don't need or want you here. I don't blame the disciples. I'd want to stay on the mountain too. Because I don't know about you, but the pain and suffering of our world right now is almost overwhelming. Your pastor's wife will tell you that everywhere I go, she says he is a magnet for people who are hurting. And people begin to tell you their problems. Sheila looked at me a while back. I hate to say this. She looked at me and began to cry. She said, sometimes I don't know that you want to die. And I said, Sheila, the weight of suffering in our world today and the overwhelming amount of counseling and the broken and the hurting lives is almost too much to bear. You see, we don't like valleys. We like mountains. And it's interesting here in Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, the Bible said that the disciples, as they were coming down with Jesus, they were deeply engrossed in a theological discussion. They were having a theological discussion with Jesus. 
And I think sometimes if we're not careful, even as a church, we get called up in the academics. We get called up in arguing theology while the world is dying and going to hell, while people are hurting. Now, I want you to see this scene. Because first of all, you've got, you've got nine disciples. So three, Peter, James, and John, that three, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. You've got nine disciples down below at the base of the mountain. You've got a crowd of people that have gathered around. You've got religious leaders. And listen, something has, has broken out. In other words, there's a debate. There's ridicule. There's laughter because... In essence, we'll find out in a moment, a father brought his son who was sick to the nine disciples and they could not heal him. And man, the religious scribes and Pharisees, these people were having a field day. But let me defend the nine. They have ne they've never known what it is not to have Jesus. I mean, they always had a backup. He's not there. You know, I wrote this principle down. You and I can need to remember it. You and I are no good apart from Jesus. We can't do anything. We need Him. And when He comes down, verse 15, it says here in verse 15, it said, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet Him. Most commentaries say that Jesus was like a celebrity, popular. The Amplified Bible says this. Look this way. The Amplified Bible said that his face glistened. Some have said that it would be like Moses coming down off the mountain. You remember when Moses came down off the mountain after being in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God? His face shined, it glowed. It glowed so much that the people, the Jewish people, asked him to cover it. But it was fading. It was outward. It was a reflection. This is not that. This is the Shekinah glory coming from the very presence of Jesus Christ. His face glistened. They're clamoring to him. Look at verse 16. He looks at this situation and he says, What are you arguing with them about? In other words, he recognizes that there is a problem here. What's, what's the problem? Now, did Jesus necessarily not know? I think he knew. I think he just wanted it out in the open. What seems to be the problem here? And notice here, notice that the nine disciples do not say anything. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders don't say anything. But notice who speaks out. Do you see it? Look at verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that robs him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. And look at these words here. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Wow. Jesus is calling this desperate parent, he's calling him out of the crowd. He wants him to verbalize. You know, let me say this. Billy Graham says this so often. Billy Graham would make this statement, to whom the Lord calls, he calls publicly. You remember the woman with the issue of blood that thought, if I could just get up and brush the hem of his garment, you remember? 
12 years she had been disabled, 12 years she had battled with this, 12 years she had expended everything. And you remember she thought to herself, if I could just touch him, I'll be well. And you remember what happened? She touched him, she's well, and she walked away. What happened? Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? And he called her out, right? You remember Zacchaeus, that publican, that tax collector? And you remember, hated by the crowd, you remember what he did. He ran up ahead because he just wanted to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And he thought, well, I'm just going to tuck myself away up in a sycamore tree here, hide out there, and catch a glimpse of Christ. What did Christ do? Gets right up under him. And Zacchaeus, he starts laughing. He said, come down, I'm going to eat at your house. You know, I see this theological arguing now about the sinner's prayer. You know, some of the discussions that we have today, we're, we're no longer having an altar call. And my thought is just how do we receive Christ? And doesn't he call us publicly? Isn't there something about a public decision? Isn't there something about being called out publicly? But in verse 17 and 18, you see this father. And I wrote down here, this is a sad truth. How often the world comes to the church with their pain and their heartache, but we're impotent, we're powerless, and we're anemic. I brought my son to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything. You know, before you amen that, let me remind you that we're not talking about this corporate body of believers. You are the ecclesia. You are the church. You are the body of Christ. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How often does a lost world hurting broken people come to you and the reality is is that you are so impotent, powerless, not where you need to be that they walk away and they say, Lord, I went to this individual only to be disappointed. They couldn't help me. And we're not talking about this church as far as this body of believers here. We're also talking about you and I as individuals. Let me tell you something. Every one of us should be magnets. You should be a magnet where you are, where you live, where you go to school. You should be a magnet. Students, young people, people should come to you. If they're broken and they're hurting, if they're dealing with a problem, if you're a teacher... Those children should feel acceptance, valued by you. People should be able to come to you and say, I'm, I've got a problem and I, I know you walk with Christ and I need you to help me. Have you noticed something here in verse 17? A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of what? What's the first thing he says here? What is it? He's been robbed of speech. He can't talk. His father longed for a conversation with his son. He longed to be able to communicate with his son. He longed for having some kind of meaningful dialogue, but his son's brain was robbed of, of depth. He couldn't get into a conversation with him. I think it's the difficulty... We have special needs. I have a special need brother. And the reality is is sometimes I long to get into a deep conversation with him that breaks through whatever binds and holds his mind prisoner to be able to say, and sometimes I think when I get to heaven, to be able to look at my brother and see a clear, sound mind and us be able to communicate and talk. Sometimes it's as if he's trapped. He's trapped. 
and it hurts because you just want to talk. But how many of us can't communicate right now? The reality is drugs, alcohol, sexual addiction, gambling, materialism, some of the fleshly, some of the things of this world rob us of the ability to have any meaningful relationships. It is bleeding us dry. And now if that's not enough, we've legalized pot, marijuana. We have a family, a member, you can't even carry on a conversation with them because they're so doped up with marijuana. And people say, well, pain, yeah, right. You don't talk to me about pain. Ask my wife how I live much of my life. The reality is, is that it is stolen his ability to communicate. That's what Satan does. The Bible says in John 10.10, he comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And this, this boy was under a demonic enemy, under the control of a demon. Why, what does Satan want? What does Satan want in your life and in my life? What does he want in the life of the people that we love? Satan seeks lordship. Well, what do you mean by that? He seeks control of your life. And he'll use whatever means he can. Drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever he can get. He'll take it and he'll control your life and he'll consume you with it because what is he trying to do? He's trying to enslave you into something other than Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. We spend our lives gaming on videos and just squandering our life away. And that's what he wants. This boy was a puppet. The demon threw him on the ground. You can just imagine this father. He turns his back just for a moment. His son collapses into a heap and slams his head against his skull, the back of his skull, against the pavement. To a, a quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, has had two concussions. They say three concussions and you're gone, you're out. Dale Earnhardt, if you remember Dale Earnhardt, the racer, years ago, was making a lap around and he flipped off another driver and then he slammed into the wall, broke his neck and went into eternity. I understand this. Years ago, working in an ambulance service, I remember the first person who had a grandma seizure. A seizure that is beyond anything that's normal. A seizure that when they have a seizure of this magnitude, you cannot completely restrain them. If you do, they have the ability to break their own bones. And I remember this individual collapsing. They were in a full grandma seizure. They were just absolutely, literally, uh, unbelievably strong. And I remember at one point holding them, controlling their movements, while at the same time you're trying to get some kind of suppression down into their mouth to hold their tongue because they'll bite their tongue in two and strangle on their own blood. And I remember my partner with me saying, watch your fingers because they'll take a finger off in that moment. This father is sitting there saying to Jesus, uh, my boy, my boy is a 24-hour, seven-day-week responsibility, and I'm tired. In Luke chapter 9, verse 39, Luke tells us that the child screams. I was reading this in the Chicago Tribune. 
14-year-old Thomas Sullivan, described as a studious boy, within a, manner, within a matter of weeks became involved in the occult and Satan worship. He stabbed his own mother, set fire to the house, hoping to kill his father and brother. He then cut his own throat and wrist with his Boy Scout knife and died outside in the snow. And let me tell you something, the occult, satanic, all of these different variances are growing at an unbelievable rate. Children get involved in drugs, get involved in addictive behavior, and a lot of times before long they're involved into the occult. Matthew 17, 15 said this. Matthew says in his account that this boy many times he has been cast into a fire or water by this evil spirit. And I wrote down here, parent, you have an enemy. Your enemy's going after your kids. Your enemy's looking for an inroad into your life. Dad, if you've got an addiction, if you've got a stronghold in your life, you can just be sure that the enemy will come through that going after whatever is under your authority. You may say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Maybe your children are not yet. This son is trapped in a broken body. But with Christ, without Christ, so are you. The reality is, is if you're here today and you don't have Christ as your Savior, you too are trapped in a broken body. I, I, I've, I've shared this story before, but it's so powerful. It's haunting to me. In fact, I've got my phone, so I want to pull a, a, a photograph of a page that I was reading. But anyway, it says here, Martin Pistorius out of South Africa who fell into a mysterious fever, but whose mind was coherent and sound. Now listen to what his parents said. He went into a coma, perfectly healthy, started a fever, and slipped into this coma and was in it for, I think, 12 years. His parents, Rodney and Joan Pistorius, were told that he was as good as not there. He was a vegetable. The hospital told them to take him home, keep him comfortable until he died. But he didn't die. Martin just kept on going, just kept on going, his mother said. His father would get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, get him dressed, load him in the car, take him to the special care center where he'd leave him. Eight hours later, he would pick him up, he would bathe him, he would feed him, he would put him in bed, he would set his alarm for two hours so that every two hours he could go in and check on his son. And we think we have problems. That was for 12 years of their life. Listen to what the article said. It said, the, it said what would you do if you were locked in your body, your brain intact, but with no way to communicate. How do you survive emotionally when you are invisible to everyone you know? And listen to what Martin said. He said his mother came in there one day, years and years of caring for him, and she looked at his broken body and she said these words. She said to this boy who laid there in a veg what she thought was a vegetable state, she looked at him and said, I wish you were dead. She had no idea that Martin trapped, that brain trapped, coherent, clear thinking, trapped in this broken body, was crying out to her for help. 
help. And he said he never forgot that moment when his mother said, I wish you were dead. You see, that's Satan's goal. You know what Satan's goal is? Is to destroy the image of God in you and I. We don't have time, but in Matthew chapter 4, do you remember in chapter 4, the latter part of chapter 4, the Bible said the disciples were going to the other side of of Galilee. You remember they got in the middle of a storm? And then in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, you remember they came to the coast of the Gadarean? And you remember when they got to the coast and they landed there at the coast, do you remember what came to meet them? What was it? It was a demon-possessed man. You remember what Jesus asked him? He said, what is your name? And the demon answered, Legion, for we are many. And you know what the Bible said? The Bible said nobody could control him. He was like a madman. He was, he was belligerent. He was angry. He was hostile. They tried to t- tie him up, and he couldn't. And you know one of the things he would do? Listen, he would cut himself. Do you realize how many people today do this? Do you realize how many young people today are cutting themselves? Let me ask someone, who would do that? Let me tell you, that's, a, that's exactly the picture of what the enemy does. The enemy would love to get you caught up in an addiction, a stronghold, and enslave you to that addiction, while at the same time he's marring the image of God. And there's no better picture of what it looks like. Satan at his best is when he convinces a young man or a young lady to cut themselves, to mar themselves. Why? You're so angry. You ever seen somebody get so angry they start hitting their head? That's Satan. He will destroy all your hopes and dreams. God's purpose, God's plan for your life. You'll you'll lose your life in video gaming, in gambling, in addiction. It's amazing now, the NFL. Have you noticed how preoccupied professional sports is now with pushing gambling? Do you realize when you say to a young 18, 19-year-old or whatever age, Now, the small print down there may say something about gambling being an addictive behavior, but do you realize, you know, I think to myself sometimes, just how much money does the Mannings need that they would have to go to the level of promoting gambling? You can't watch professional sports anymore. You know why? Because professional sports will lure and pull people into gambling. You'd say, well, I don't know if that's that big a problem. I've told you before, I was sitting with a pastor in this city, a prominent pastor. All of a sudden, we were having a conversation. I was doing a revival in his church, and he, and he got a phone call. And this, or the secretary said, you've got a phone call. I think you need to take it. He got on the phone. I could tell he was troubled. He was upset. And he said, I can't do that. I don't have the money to do that. And when he got off the phone, he looked at me. Tears began to fill his eyes. And this pastor said, my son-in-law is over $30,000 in gambling debt. And he's about to lose his home. And my daughter does not know. And they've got a family. My friend, let me tell you. They lost their home, their marriage fell apart, and they went through hell because of an addiction that nobody took control of. That's Satan. He loves to do to your life what we used to do with an orange. 
When I was, uh, when, yeah, you've heard me tell the story. We lived in Titusville, Florida. My dad worked for NASA. We had a big orange grove back, back behind the house. And when we were kids, we'd go over there. We'd slip over in that orange grove. We'd pull an orange down. We'd take a knife and cut a hole, a plug out of the top of it. We'd roll that orange around in our hand, and then we'd squeeze every bit of the juice out of that orange. And then we'd throw it away, grab another one, take a hole out of that, roll it around, and sit there and do it over and over and over and over again. We did it so much, we took so many oranges, that finally the owner of the grove came and had a meeting with the entire neighborhood over how the kids were uh, taking advantage of his orange grove. That's exactly what Satan does. You're a young person. You've got all kinds of hopes and dreams. You know what he wants you to do? Compromise morally, ethically. Compromise. Begin to give in to Satan. Why? So he can disqualify you from ever being used mightily by God. That's what he does. He wants you to be held a victim. In bondage. Enslaved. Why? So you can't follow Christ. The Son does not get to the Father. He do, the Son does not get to Jesus without the faith and the belief of His Father. His Father brings Him. And let me tell you something. His Father didn't leave when the nine couldn't do anything about it. His Father brought Him to Jesus. This past week, a couple of nights ago, we, we saw tornadoes whip through this state. When I heard Rolling Fork and Anguilla and Silver City and all those places, I preached. I preached in those places. Rolling Fork, I preached in the Baptist church, preached in the Methodist church. I've done revivals. I've done conferences. Uh, I, I preached there. But let me tell you something. Could you imagine, could you imagine if you could turn back the clock 72 hours ago and had the ability to walk into, up and down the streets of Rolling Fork and to be able to say to those people, there is a storm coming, there is a storm brewing, and you need to go ahead and prepare and take cover. You know what people would do? They would do what some of you are doing. They'd probably just laugh, yawn, think about lunch. What a father and his daughter taken and a mom and two other children left. Can you imagine the horror of that moment as a family is separated in a violent act of nature in that moment, and they're gone? You know, Amy, my daughter, who's a dentist, and, and my oldest daughter, and a brilliant young lady. Amy was a dentist in Smithville, uh, Mississippi. And she said one day they got, somebody came in and said there's a tornado coming. It's in the top ten tornadoes. It's like number six, maybe five or four, somewhere in there of tornadoes of all time. Amy was pregnant. She said, I walked out into that waiting room and there were three senior adults, elderly women there. She said, I looked at them and said, ladies, we got to get out of here. We've got to take cover. We've got to find somewhere to go. My daughter, five months pregnant, took those three elderly women, and one of them said, I have a key to the Methodist church across the street. She led those three women. She said this. She said, Dad, because we've flown a lot being missionaries, she said, Dad, that tornado was like a jet engine when it sits on one end of the runway, and all of a sudden it 
fires up all those engines preparing to take off. She said it felt just like that. She said at the same time, I could feel the pressure in my womb. And here I was with these little ladies inching their way across and I could feel that storm bearing down on us. She said, Dad, we walked down into that stairwell, down into that basement of that Methodist church when all of a sudden that tornado went through. It wiped out the Baptist church, the Methodist church. She said the only thing standing was the brick wall by that place where we had gone down. She said, Dad, when I finally came up out of there, I think there were 25, 27 people dead. And everything was gone. Except this. A crimson ribbon draped for Easter around a cross stood in the midst of absolute ruin. And Amy said in that moment, Dad, the sun came out. My friend, I don't know what you face. I don't know what difficulty you're going through. But I can tell you this much. Jesus Christ loves you. And He has a plan and a purpose for your life and for those you love. And you're never beyond Him salvaging, saving, and doing something great in your life. Never. But if you're sitting here today and you're in bondage to anything, you're under the slave, the lordship of anything other than, than Jesus Christ, then my friend, you are flirting with disaster. It will destroy your life. If it is sexual promiscuity, if it is pornography, if it is alcohol, if it is drugs, if it's materialism, you just can't quit spending. And let me tell you something. For some of you in this room, you need to remember these words. The borrower is a slave to the lender. You are spending money and putting yourself further and further down. And Satan will use that to drive a wedge in your marriage, with your children, and with everything else in your life. It's not a materialism. It's not some little simple sin that God overlooks. Best thing to do is go to Jesus and say, Lord, here it is. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, we think about a young man like Martin, this, this, this boy that was trapped in this body, his mind coherent and clear, his mind calling out for somebody, only for a, a helper in that home one day to say something to him and to see the movement of his eyes and in that moment realize that he could hear her as she began to scream out in that household to his parents, as she reached out into that medical community to say, he understands. He's just trapped. Lord, I'm talking to people right now. They feel trapped. They feel overwhelmed. The enemy holds them in bondage. They don't know how to say no anymore. And they think to themselves, I'm hopelessly and helplessly forever dependent upon this addiction, this stronghold in my life. But Jesus Christ can set them free. He can give a peace 
that can only come from Him. But it only comes when we repent of our sin and put our faith and our trust in Christ. So Lord, I pray today if there's one here, man or woman, boy or girl, who says, I, I've, um, I'm here. And I don't know whether I'm saved or not. And I don't know where I stand with the Lord right now. My life is a mess. I pray, dear Lord, today that they would come. That they would just come publicly and say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. And I want to put my faith and my trust in you. And I want to follow you today as my Lord. And I want to leave all this broken mess. I want to leave it here in the altar. I want to leave it at the foot of the cross. And God, there may be others here in this room that, Lord, they may be here today and they say, you know, I'm a no, I know I'm a Christian, but I've not been walking the way I should. My life has not been what it ought to be. And I need you, Pastor, I need you to pray, pray for me, pray with me. Some just need to come to this altar and do business. Whatever that decision may be, may we make that decision today, not put it off. And Lord, we'll give you all the glory and honor, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.